Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is June 5th, 2017, and my guest is author and journalist Thomas Ricks. He is the National Security Advisor at the Think Tank New America, the military history columnist at the New York Times Book Review. His blog, Best Defense, can be found at foreignpolicy.com, where he's also a contributing editor. His books include Fiasco, The Generals, and his latest book, which is our topic for today, Churchill and Orwell, The Fight for Freedom. Tom, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you. Now, at first glance, uh, Churchill and Orwell seem like an unlikely pairing. What did you see in their lives and work that encouraged you to write this book and put them together? Well, for me, it actually began with as a feeling I was sort of leaving journalism, I guess, becoming a full-time book writer. And I think as part of my farewell to journalism, I went back and started reading a lot of 20th century journalists, curious about who would be remembered and who would be forgotten, and most of them will be forgotten. And I went back and started with H.L. Mencken and found Mencken's style anachronistic, his politics um, really wrong, and his understanding of America very limited. Uh, So I turned to S.J. Perlman, found him not funny. (laughs) I turned to E.B. White and found E.B. White's prose style extremely good, but his concerns kind of uh, not, not to my interest at all didn't seem to speak to today. I picked up Hemingway and just found him a blowhard. And then I picked up Orwell. And George Orwell just stood out. It was such a fresh, new voice. Here's a guy who died in 1950, yet he sounded like he was writing today in his prose style. And his concerns were the concerns of today. Uh, How do you preserve the freedom of the individual in an era of an intrusive state and an even more intrusive corporation? Uh, how, what is freedom of expression? How do you define it? How do you preserve it? And that really intrigued me. And I went back and kind of reread a lot of him, read his letters and diaries, which I'd not read. And as I was reading, it occurred to me, wow, this guy is kind of a left-wing parallel to another hero of mine, Winston Churchill. And I began to see similarities in their points of view, even as, as you say, as they're extraordinarily different people. Their lives are entertaining to read about. Um, I've read a lot about Churchill and World War II, and despite that, I really enjoyed your account of, of his contributions to to World War II and our lives and today. And it's your book's really an entertaining read. I, I really I couldn't put it down. It, it's it's very clear that Churchill is an important figure in the 20th century and in, and today. Uh, why is Orwell of equal importance? What's important really about both of them uh, for someone today who perhaps doesn't know as much history as, um, as someone else? Well, what's extraordinary to me, what's extraordinary to me about Churchill is how he almost single-handedly in 1940 saved the West. He is the only person, I think, who, serving as prime minister, would have absolutely refused to negotiate with Nazi Germany. Almost every other figure we know of at that point who could have been prime minister would have been inclined to a peace settlement, and the West, as we know it, would be very different today. The peace settlement probably would have given the Nazis a free hand in Europe in exchange for Britain being allowed to keep its empire. Instead, he said, absolutely not. We're going to fight and fight. And he says explicitly, uh, uh, upon the entry of Britain into the war, we are going to fight for the right of the individual to exist. And um, Orwell, in the wake of that, comes along and explains the post-war world and explains what our concerns need to be. What strikes me today is that Orwell still feels like a contemporary figure. I maintain a Google search uh, Google alert on his name when I was writing the book. And 
every day they're seeing 20 or 30, sometimes 40 or 50 uh, Google hits where people writing about him around the world. And in fact, I think he's almost been liberated by the end of the Cold War. People have come to see that he was not a, just necessarily a Cold War author and that his books, especially Animal Farm and 1984, resonate wherever there is a governmental abuse of power, wherever people are in jail saying, no, um, I demand my right to perceive facts myself and not simply tow whatever line the government is handing out. Let's talk about Churchill's uh, opposition and, and unwillingness to negotiate that you mentioned, because I, I thought about it when reading your book, and you, of course, deal in, in passing with Chamberlain's 1938 Munich Agreement. And it's now fashionable, of course, to uh, mock Chamberlain and as an appeaser and a fool because he came back and said, we have peace in our time. But I think it's very hard for Americans, and it may be even hard for um, people in, in the UK today, to remember what the mood in the UK was at the time. I looked up the numbers. England lost, the UK, excuse me, the United Kingdom lost 700,000 people in World War I. That's deaths. It's not wounded. It's almost 2% of their population. So it's the equivalent of America losing 6 million people in a war today. It's really, um, it's hard to, for us to realize the lack of enthusiasm that the British public had to fight Nazism and to stand up to it. And it's totally understandable. In France, similarly, which had even more deaths, about the same population, uh, you know, their, their surrender, which, again, Churchill and others have, have, have uh, criticized and, and uh, bemoaned. But I think it's hard for us to appreciate how people felt that just 20 years earlier had been the most devastating, horrific uh, experience of, of national loss up to that point. And Churchill somehow was immune to that. Churchill somehow rallied his people to fight when they really weren't in the mood. And that, that to me, is his, his incredible achievement. Do you have any thoughts on why and how he was able to do that? Well, that's a two-part question. Uh, first, about the nature of appeasement. Second, about the nature of, uh, of Churchill. Uh, you're right that nobody wanted war. The question was not, uh, does Churchill want war and Chamberlain want peace? The question was, what is the best way to avoid war? And it was observed that Chamberlain, by simply seeking to avoid war at all costs, virtually guaranteed that it would occur. Had Hitler been confronted earlier, say at the time of the taking of the Rhineland, uh, he almost certainly would have had to back down. He had no military to speak of at that point. England and France combined were much stronger than Germany was in 1935. But Germany was rearming. And what really made Germany much stronger was appeasement. Under appeasement, Hitler was allowed to take the Rhineland, and then you have the Anschluss that gives him Austria. And finally, they give him a chunk of Czechoslovakia. Uh, The Austrian gold was extremely important to the German treasury, Even more important were the Czech arms factories they gained. And most important was, because of the demographics of World War I, most important was all the people they gained in the Rhineland, Austria, and Czechoslovakia. Every time Germany took another um, country, it gained the labor and the military um, enrollment of, of the populations there. So Chamberlain, by backing away from war steadily, Gives Hitler uh, more and more, but even makes him a stronger opponent. Um, the striking thing about what Churchill does in 1940 is he tells the people the truth. And they find this oddly reassuring. All his famous speeches, uh, the one, the phrases that we remember today, except for the Iron Curtain speech, all the famous speeches are in 1940. Um, this was their finest hour, blood, sweat, and tears. Fight them on the beaches. And, well, fight them on the beaches is interesting because that is a devastatingly honest speech that basically lays out a fighting retreat. 
Yeah. We will fight them on the beaches. We will fight them on the landing fields. We will fight them in the cities. We will fight them in the hills. What he's saying is we will maintain a guerrilla warfare opposition to these people. We're not just going to give up once they take London. We're just going to keep on fighting. And he also uses this phrase, never, never, never give up. And I think that really stiffens the British. They realize that they have foolishly backed into war with this policy of appeasement. And Churchill was right all along. He's the sole British leader who really has much credibility at this point, And he really uses it. But he's in a very weak position in 1940. A lot of people thought he would be an interim leader, uh, that he'd be out by the end of summer. And um, he might even be dead. Joseph Kennedy, father of JFK and the American ambassador to London at the time, was a defeatist. He kept on saying the Germans are going to win. In the summer of 1940, he predicted that Hitler would be sitting in Buckingham Palace by the fall. Yeah, and that, as you point out, I think a lot of people assume Churchill would be tossed for his belligerence, um, intractability, stubbornness. It, it, it could have turned and perhaps out. perhaps hanged by, yeah. by, either, <laughs> by either the Germans or by a British government collaborating like Vichy France did yeah. with the Germans and probably a fascist British government led by Oswald uh, Mosley. Uh, we'll get to Orwell soon. I, I just while we're on Churchill, I want to stick with him for a minute. One of the interesting parts of your book that I had not been sufficiently aware of was the class issues that Churchill uh, either refused to play to, given his own uh, background, and especially around the Battle of Britain, both in terms of the damage, where the damage was done from uh, the Nazi air air attacks and the uh, source of the British defense and the RAF, the Royal Air Force, uh, where that came from, and the feeling that the, arist the aristocrats and the upper crust weren't doing their share and too much of the, of the brunt was falling on others, and that Churchill was very aware of that. Talk about those, those forces. It's fascinating to me. Uh, Britain, even today, is the most class-ridden society in all of Europe, but it was even more stratified by class back then. And you're right, uh, the working class disproportionately bears the impact of the German bombing because East London and Southeast London are being hit very hard, much harder than West London, where the rich lived. In addition, a lot of the rich had decamped to their country homes. Uh, meanwhile, the fighting in the air over their heads, uh, the British aircraft are piloted overwhelmingly by... Uh, the sons of the middle class. Uh, the RAF, the Royal Air Force, was kind of disdained. It wasn't the Navy, it wasn't the Army, it was this new force that kind of had an air of petroleum and loop, engine lubricants to it. It was seen as not quite done. These people were a little bit like chauffeurs up in the air. Um, and at the end of the Battle of Britain, Churchill asked that the numbers be pulled together and says, my God, the the aristocratic class was not present in this battle. Very few of these pilots were from the upper class. These are the middle class, he says, and, and to quote him, and they deserve the cut to, to run the country now. And it really struck me reading that, that Margaret Thatcher was his heir in so many ways, that, that Thatcher, the daughter of a uh, middle class or, or lower middle class grocer, really inherited the mantle that Churchill described during the Battle of Britain. Now, I think I read it in Manchester's biography that, that Churchill maybe never uh, touched a tube of toothpaste, uh, that, that someone always squeezed the tube for him. Uh, he led a rather pampered existence. Uh, he's notable. At one point, at one point somebody... Um, asked his wife about him taking a bus. <laughs> he says he's never taken a bus in his life. No, for sure. Um, I'm not sure he ever drove anywhere in his life. He probably was chauffeured uh, pretty regularly throughout his youth and adulthood. He's also a man of, of incredible um, refined tastes. He, he's famous during the war for when he goes to really unpleasant places. He still has first-rate cigars and wine and, and scotch uh, as, you know, as Johnny Walker. And, and yet, somehow, this um, aristocratic man became the voice of the people. How do you pull that off? 
You're right. I mean, Church of the Bon Vivant is such a fascinating figure. I mean, the fact that he insisted on wearing pale silk underwear <laughs> his whole life is just striking. He, he, at one point in World War II, he's in Cairo, staying at the British Embassy. And at the breakfast table, he asked his hostess for a carafe of white wine with breakfast. Now, she raises her eyebrows slightly, and he says, don't worry, madam, I've already had two whiskey sodas. <laughs> um, and he, the other... Go ahead, sorry. He, 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 um, I think he pulls this off because he is not... Well, he may be from an aristocratic background, he's not a gentleman. Uh, he doesn't hem and haw. He doesn't shave the truth. He tends to tell people quite bluntly what he thinks. And I also think it's key to him, he totally lacked empathy. I, I don't think an empathetic person, a sen person sensitive to other people's feelings, c could have made it through World War II, through the crushing conditions. Remember, they were in the war a couple of years longer than America was. And with and nothing good. Directly. With almost nothing good to show for it for so long. <laughs> Just was well, defeat but, after defeat in the yeah, early days. Defeat after defeat, and 50,000 British civilians are killed during the war by bombs and, and rockets and fires and buildings collapsing on them. Um, I think about this these days when I watch the terrorist attacks. Yeah. These are people who only a couple of generations ago uh, were able to deal with enormous suffering. More British civilians died in combat in World War II than died in the British Navy. Uh, I think there's something in the British culture that did enable them to, to, to make it through this, and Churchill resonated with that. The kind of um, making his stubbornness and really his pig-headedness a virtue. And it was a virtue during the war. Unfortunately, it was not a virtue before the war or after Correct. the war, which was one reason that he, um, I think, is, is thrown out of office by the British voter as soon as World War II ends in Europe and why his second term as prime minister in the early 50s was a disaster, uh, just a train wreck that most historians just avert their eyes from. So I want to encourage listeners uh, who have trips to London planned in their future to visit the Churchill War Rooms, uh, which I've been able to go to twice. Uh, it's my favorite thing in London. It won't be your favorite thing, listener, necessarily. I don't want to suggest and that. And which it's, Margaret Thatcher set out to reopen correct. and make a museum of. And what this is is the, the quarters that, that Churchill and his staff used during the war below ground. I think it's below the Treasury Building, correct, or near it. Yes, and um, it's striking that Churchill remains in London uh, throughout the war. Uh, when a lot of the aristocrats had fled, that was another distinction. But also remember, the aristocracy, a lot of them had a real contempt for Churchill. Uh, he was seen as kind of a piratical figure, a half-breed because he was half-American. Uh, there was a lot of distrust among the Tories who really did not see him as a gentleman or a true conservative. But what struck me in those rooms, and, and they're just, it's beautifully preserved and it's really well done, is how Spartan they are. And I come back to this man in his, in his silk underwear and his fine wines, and I, it's very plain. It's strikingly plain. Was that intentional? Was the world just a poorer place? Did you have that thought when you were there? I'm sure you've been there. I, I haven't been there. Um, I don't know why. Just haven't, haven't well, been in, in London lately. <laughs> I did walk out uh, this Bar Orwell's Barcelona recently, um, in Orwell's Paris, actually. I think it's partly so plain because I think it was um, an unused uh, station on the uh, British tube, the subway system in London, and that became the, the basis of, of, of the bunker, using that. Uh, and so I, I think it was pretty utilitarian, and it's to begin with. And also, there simply wasn't time and, and resources to make it more luxurious. I'm sure that it, it, if he had his preference, you know, the walls would have been wainscoted, would have looked like a, uh, a an 18th century uh, man of war. Well, it's very moving to go see them because you realize how much hung in the balance there. And um, there's a map room there, uh, sort of a central headquarter piece of the, of the uh, bunker where... Uh, basically, the lights didn't go out for seven years. <laughs> I mean, it just, again, it makes you realize just how, um, what, a, what a horrible slog uh, that war was for, um, for so many people. 
want to close? I it? also think Churchill probably didn't see what was in front of him a lot uh, when he was in that bunker. Um, much of the war is taking place inside his head. Uh, this was his great achievement, I think, as a war leader, besides rallying the British people, was having an overall strategic conception of the war, the big picture. Oddly enough, the place where he explains this best is in his essay on painting and why he loves painting. And he says, when you're, when you're painting a picture, you're working on small details, but you must constantly keep in mind the big picture, the entire painting. And uh, it's, also, it's a good description of how he approached war. I think he saw World War II as a giant canvas that was to be his masterpiece. And he's constantly dealing with small details in a very effective way. But uh, his great achievement as a leader was having that overall strategic concept. Um, for example, the sense that it's always better to do something do, than to do nothing uh, because it throws the enemy off the initiative. So even if they got thrown out of Norway, in doing so, the Royal Navy and the Royal Air Force destroyed enough German ships that uh, it, it helped prevent German landings in England the following, the, in the following months. Uh, his other great strategic conception was, I can stop the Germans from defeating me, but I can't win the war unless the Americans come in. And from the day he becomes prime minister, he's intent on finding a way to, to pull the Americans into the war. Yeah, that that clearly was the of all. You know, he had a lot of goofy ideas. He had a lot of pet projects. Some of them turned out to be fabulously useful. Some of them probably were a terrible waste of resources. And you talk about how uh, it's Alan Brooke, right? His um, yes. What's his title? He's his right hand man, but I don't know what else. What he is, uh, chief General of staff. Alan, Alan Brooke, and later becomes Lord Alan Brooke. And how frustrating it was for Brooke to work with him, and um, and yet. Clearly, the biggest, single, most important thing was to get America into the war, and Churchill uh, focused on that relentlessly. And I think you demystify or de-romanticize a little bit his relationship with FDR, which I think it's easy to romanticize their friendship. It was really a marriage of tremendous convenience, certainly for Churchill. And uh, as a friend pointed out to me the other day, the only peaceful transfer of hegemonic power in world history uh, – from England to America. Uh, but a very friction-filled relationship, and uh, Churchill's great achievement, is that he manages that relationship with FDR so, so well uh, that they are able to work t together. It was not a classic friendship, but I do think it was a true wartime comradeship. Well, they clearly respected each other, I think, at least as political leaders. Who knows what else? But um, Well, two, two narcissistic monologists there you go. find <laughs> they eventually have to shut up and listen to each other. Well, I'm come, let's talk about that a little because you mentioned the lack of empathy. I, I'm reminded when I read about Churchill sometimes, this may strike some listeners or you as strange, but I'm reminded of Steve Jobs, a very difficult mm. person to work for, uh, mm -hmm. a little bit. A little bit self-centered, uh, a little bit focused mm -hmm. on what they think they know is the only way to go. And yet, despite mm -hmm. that, they inspire tremendous loyalty in the people who work for them. And they work very hard. Again, in the Church of War Rooms, you can't, be you can't ignore the fact, you can't help but notice the fact that you get to listen on your earphones to the diaries of some of the people who work there. And he treated them you know, like like dogs. He it made them work relentlessly yeah. because he thought Western civilization was at stake, and he was onto something there. Mm -hmm. And yet, despite that, they were they were so eager to serve him because for his charisma. I don't know, but it reminded me of Jobs in that way. Well, well I think it's a good analogy to Jobs because both Orwell and Churchill were failures most of their lives. Most of the things they did, most of the time. Failed. And I think that makes them very human, more human than a lot of our so-called heroes, um, because all, all of us fail every day in some way to be who we want to be or to succeed in certain ways, and none of us get out of here alive. I mean, ultimately, all humans fail at the end of their lives. Uh, so I think that uh, aspect uh, generally uh, resonates, but, but also... Uh, you're not going to innovate. You're not going to surprise your competition if you're not trying, innovating, 
constantly, and innovation, by definition, is going to fail most of the time. So there's sort of this flailing around, enormous energy, micromanagement, but it results in occasional blinding success, as Jobs had and as Churchill and as Orwell had at the very end of his life. So let's turn a little bit to Orwell, but as a segue, I want you to talk about the stories that you open the book with, which are really moving, how close both came to death, uh, and had they died, uh, their greatest achievements would not have occurred, and their historical legacy— They they would have been failures. Yeah, so talk about Um, how they both uh, survived two incidents. Early, both occur in the 1930s. The first is Churchill, uh, really isolated within his own party because of his opposition uh, to appeasement, uh, which was the fashionable view, the dominant view, the clever view. Uh, he's politically an outcast. He's also a financial wreck. He's lost uh, his, his small fortune that he'd made by writing. He's lost in the stock market crash in 1929. He's in America, in New York City, doing speaking tours to try to earn some money. And crossing Fifth Avenue, he looks the wrong way as he steps into the street, perhaps because of his British habits. He's hit by a car. He's dragged about 30 feet. His scalp is slashed open. Several ribs are broken. Had he landed slightly differently, uh, he might have been paralyzed or killed. But he his survived. reputation at that point would have been of a minor... British political figure who messed up in World War One and Gallipoli, and it, and then never really recovered and flailed around politically, yeah. and died a failure. Yeah, Orwell, likewise, Orwell, um, he's intriguing to me as a writer because he has grown to be so influential today and so important today. Uh, spent most of his life unknown, except really to his until his last two books come out in the late forties. In the 1930s, he is uh, a minor and very mediocre novelist. His early novels are almost unreadable. Um, I like um, one of them, Burmese Days, but that's because it's more of a memoir, really, than a novel. His naturalistic, imaginative novels, uh, I, I believe me, I tried to read, because I said, like, Tom, you're writing a book about Churchill and Orwell, you better, <laughs> you better read these. And I tried, and I tried, and I find them unreadable. Coming up for air, a clergyman's daughter, keep the Asperdista flying. Uh, then he goes off in 1936 to see the Spanish Civil War. Very quickly becomes uh, involved in the fighting. He's associated with the left, uh, which is to say with the Republican government that was fighting the fascist and nationalist rebels. He gets involved in street fighting in Barcelona, in which the Soviet-dominated security apparatus is trying to wipe out uh, anti-Soviet leftists. Remember that the uh, first people the communists try to kill are not the right, they're the socialists. Then he is shot through the throat in May of 1937. He's on the front lines. It's dawn. Uh, he is a squad leader, and he's checking on his men. And the sun is behind him, silhouetting him. He's, he's tall. He's over six feet. And he's perfectly silhouetted for a sniper from the other side who fires a bullet, catches him right in the throat, probably aimed for his head, and the bullet probably sank a little bit. And through extraordinary luck, the bullet passes through his throat but doesn't hit the windpipe, which would have killed him, uh, the carotid artery, which would have killed him, or his spine, which would have killed him. He goes in an angle between all these, comes out the back, Orwell sinks to the ground, realizing he's been hit. When he's told you're shot through the throat, he thinks, well, I'm, I'm a goner. He's never heard of anybody surviving that kind of wound. And his first thought, he says conventionally enough, is that he'll never see his wife again, and he's sorry for that. And his second thought is, I will miss this world because, after all, I get along in it so well. He goes home after all this, and he sits down and reads all the British newspapers left and right about the Spanish Civil War. And that was a great revelation. They're both lying. He had expected the right to lie because he's a leftist. The shock when he finds the left-wing newspapers are also lying. And it kind of, we think about fake news nowadays. He comes back and he says, the news being reported here about what's going on in Spain is fake. And that begins his great political transformation 
in the same way that Churchill was transformed by his anti-Nazi, um, anti-appeasement stance throughout the 1930s. We had Christopher uh, Hitchens on Econ Talk uh, years back, and sadly Hitchens is gone now. But uh, Hitchens was on to talk about his book, Why Orwell Matters, and he talks at length about how Orwell's honesty at that point, that he reported that the left was covering up the the Soviets, uh, uh, as you say, their purges of of similar but not uh, true enough believers. And he loses. In fact, they built a crematorium on the outskirts of Barcelona to dispose of the left wingers they killed. And he loses a lot of friends uh, because of this. Yeah. And and somehow um, carries on. But and as you point out, had he been killed by that bullet, he would have been a very minor figure. He wrote some nice essays that people still read, but I suspect they still read them because he was the author of 1984 and Animal Farm. How do you think? I don't think. Well, some of his later essays, I mean, he hadn't written it yet, but Politics of the English Language is one, I think, one of the great essays of all time. And I think that still would be read. But as you say, he hadn't hadn't written it when he was in Spain. So, do you have any thoughts? I don't remember you talking about this in the book. How is it that a man near the end of his life, and he lived a very short life and was very weak toward the end, as you describe very uh, powerfully, how does he transform his talent in that way? going from, as you say, a mediocre novelist to the author of two of the most extraordinary, and as you, as you point out, I think correctly, arguably the, the most important novels of the 20th century. That's really it's an extraordinary story. Well, one reason that both Churchill and Orwell are so intriguing here is they were right about what was important in their time when a lot of their contemporaries were wrong. And we only know, with the passage of time, not only that Churchill was right, I mean, that Orwell was right, but how right he was. Uh, It was unfashionable to take the political stance he took uh, on the left. Uh, The basic view then was communism is good, anything that helps communism is good, so even lying about it is good. Ignoring facts that, that disagree with the party, that's what we need to do. And again, you have an alliance here between Churchill and Orwell. They both begin insisting on the facts. If you go back and read Churchill's speeches in the House of Commons throughout the 30s, beginning in 1933, he gets up repeatedly and says, the fact of the matter is. Facts also become Orwell's key. Uh, And the insistence that the individual's perception is the beginning of freedom. This is made explicit in 1984. He says the right to say that 2 plus 2 equals 4 is the beginning point of freedom. If you have that, you have everything else you need to be free. Uh, So it's the insistence on both sides of what are the facts of the matter, apply your principles to those facts, and never put opinion over fact. And what I love is this is something that we can learn from today, from both Churchill and Orwell, and in fact, there's a great instance of it in American history, which is Dr. Martin Luther King in the early 1960s, sitting in his jail cell in Birmingham, Alabama, writes his letter for the Birmingham City Jail in the margins of a newspaper because they won't give him writing paper. And that is very much in the tradition of Orwell. He says, what are the facts of the matter? The fact is that Birmingham is the most segregated city in America. The fact is that Negroes wishing to exercise the rights the government says they have are prevented violently from doing so by the security organs of the state of Alabama. And he lays out the facts of the matter. So I think their their perception of Churchill and Orwell that the key question of the the 20th century was not what Freud thought, the workings of the subconscious, the unconscious, and not what Marx thought, ownership of the means of production, but the key question these guys said is how do you preserve freedom? And that liberty begins with the right of the individual to perceive the facts as he or she sees them. I think that was a great insight of theirs. That's why I think they rise up so powerfully and why Orwell's later works have had uh, such a sustained audience. Uh, he has sold 50 million books since he died. Uh, he probably, 
until the last couple of years of his life, he sold almost nothing. So I think that uh, with the passage of time, we've seen that Orwell especially uh, gives us insight into the world we live in today and, in fact, gave us a lot of the vocabulary we use to think about the world today. Um, you know, the great uh, phrases and sentences out of Animal Farm, and especially 1984, Big Brother is watching, um, war is peace, ignorance is strength. Uh, even uh, his hero uh, in 1984, named Winston, by the way, the hero of 1984 has a job. People remember that part of his job is to get rid of inconvenient facts. He actually cuts them out, and at the end of his desk, there's a thing called the memory hole. He drops the facts into the memory hole, the facts that the government no longer wants to have around. But also part of his job was to dump down the language. So uh, he explains to a friend, we used to have words like splendid and excellent. Uh, now we have good, uh, plus good, and double plus good, uh, which actually reminds me somewhat of our current president's vocabulary limitations. Well, it's more than that. It's the, you know, he's just, I view our current situation as the product of other trends. A lack of respect for language, um, emphasis on the soundbite. Um, and just reminds me when people said to me when I started Econ Talk, no one wants to listen to something for an hour. They want, you know, yeah. 30 seconds, maybe five minutes, but your show shouldn't be over five or 10 minutes at the most. I mean, people would say to me, NPR, I mean, an eight minute segment on radio is a long segment. And, um, you know, there is a, there is some, um, I think cyclical response to this. There is some awareness that we've lost something. Uh, we've lost something about the truth in our, in our urge for shorter and quicker. And, um, I would push a little past what you said when you talk about the facts, I often um, talk on this program about the dangers of statistical analysis, how easily it's manipulated. And I always say, despite that, that, that doesn't mean the, that evidence is, is not relevant. The facts do matter, but it's more than the facts because the facts are often manipulated too. It's and selectively chosen and cherry-picked. It's really an eye for the truth, which is elusive. We all have to be aware of our own biases. and But I think the... The willingness of Churchill and Orwell to say what at least they thought was true, which turned out by history to actually be true, that, that Nazism was more than just a different way of living. It was evil, uh, that, that the growth of the state to the levels that it had reached in the Soviet Union was more than just an infringement on liberty. It was the end of liberty for many, so many people, tragically, in, in that system. That truth, those truths turned out to turn out to be true. They turned out to be true. They were actual truths, and I think it's so hard to keep our eye on the prize in the in the. Well, I think it's it's facts and principles together. You're right. Uh, facts are, are nothing without principles to help us understand, organize, and deem what's important, what's essential, and what's relatively minor. Uh, that combination, though, is so powerful a fact and principle, uh, and that's what you see with like the Soviet dissidents, for example. Uh, for Solzhenitsyn actually to simply go out and observe what are the facts of the gulag, of the Soviet penal system. This is a, an act that is revolutionary and, in the eyes of the Soviet government, subversive. They recognize that if people start determining their own facts, we're going to lose control of this society. Which was true. Which is, in fact, <laughs> what happened. Uh, but it's the combination of principles and facts uh, so that's one thing I find myself doing these days, is looking around, uh, not only for who is accurately portraying the facts, but also who is applying principle to them. Uh, I'm not a conservative, but I find uh, lately some of the most informed political commentary has come from American conservatives who are opposed to Trump, uh, partly because they have a perspective I don't, that of the conservative and so they see Trump slightly differently, uh, and they've persuaded me, these writers like Elliot Cohen, David Frum, Max Mood, Jennifer Rubin, they've persuaded me that Trump is not a conservative because he has no loyalty to institutions. He has no understanding of the American Constitution and its daily application. 
Uh, and so he's probably more a radical reactionary than he is a genuine conservative. Let's um, let's go back to Orwell, though, because I, I'm just so fascinated. I, I did not know this, and I think it will shock readers, uh, listeners. He couldn't get 1984 published for the longest time. Talk about that. Uh, actually, it was um, Animal Farm. Oh, it was Animal Farm, that, sorry. Uh, it was Animal Farm that had real difficulty getting published, which he was surprised by. He had always been able to find publishers of some sort, even as he's becoming um, internally more critical of the left, as in The Road to Wigan Pier. But Animal Farm, he's finished it. He knows it's a good book, that it has real potential. And it keeps on getting rejected. We now know, uh, partly because the KGB archives were opened, that one of the people who prevented it from getting published was a British official named Peter Smollett. And Peter Smollett had contacted some publishers and said, you don't want to publish this, it would not be helpful. We now know that Peter Smollett, besides being a British official, was secretly a Soviet spy. Uh, so there were real game here, real stakes here, uh, not surprisingly, Orwell about this time begins to carry a pistol because so many of his friends have been killed by Soviet Soviet agents in Spain, and he's worried that when Animal Farm comes out, as eventually it did, uh, right after the war ended in Europe, uh, he begins to worry that they'll try to kill him as well. Uh, because, though, the, the book was delayed until uh, the end of the war, suddenly paper became more available, and they began printing Animal Farm and essentially never stopped. It was a smash hit in, in England and then in Europe and then in America. And for the first time in his life, 1945, money begins to pour into Orwell. Um, he's not a rich man, but he's able to pay his debts and able to, to live decently. Uh, unfortunately for him, he only lives another few years and dies at the age of 46 in 1950. So I, I want to... Before I forget, I want to mention, I, I used to, at the end of my classes every year, when I was every semester, I would encourage my students to read a set of books that I thought they might miss. Uh, the Bible, P.G. Woodhouse, Three Men in a Boat by Jerome K. Jerome. Uh, it's an eclectic list. Uh, and I would also mention uh, the three volumes of the Gulag Archipelago by Alexander Solzhenitsyn because they're such an incredible tribute to human courage in the face of um, of tyranny. And I think it's not an easy read for most. It wasn't an easy read then. It's even less easy now as the now that the Soviet Union has fallen. But if you can't handle that, I do recommend Ann Applebaum's book, The Gulag, which is um, a short yeah. one-volume summary of, of what that world was. And um, I would actually add Ann to my list of Conservatives, or she's more a centrist, I'd say, but conservative centrist, uh, in the with, whose criticism of Trump is so illuminating. Well, she's just she's an excellent writer. Um, yeah, I find it interesting. As, as I was, uh, two things about Orwell's last two books. Let's start with Animal Farm. You you make the great point that England is a great uh, fount of um, talking animal books. Uh, which I had never thought about, Winnie the Pooh, Wind in the Willows, Dr. Doolittle. Is that a British thing? Peter Rabbit. Peter Rabbit. Is that a British thing, or is it just that we read, you and I read in English and notice those? Is that a tradition in any other culture, literary culture? It, it is a great tradition in the West, going back to Aesop's fables. Oh, yeah. But somehow it was a fairly minor strain. And then, for some reason, and I can't tell you why, it explodes in late 19th century and early 20th century England. Uh, it's funny, I actually came to this subject as an old war correspondent because I think that uh, some of the best things ever written about war are actually so difficult psychologically for the writer to handle that they're kind of transformed and not necessarily recognizable as being about war. Uh, and a good example of this is Dr. Doolittle. Hmm. Dr. Doolittle begins as a series of letters written home uh, from the front by a British soldier to his children 
really to, to keep himself entertained and get his mind off of the war. But here he is, living underground, like an animal, in trenches. And so when men are living and dying like animals, um, what are they? They're talking animals. And so Dr. Doolittle is kind of an expression, I think, of war as we are just talking animals. So, in fact, animals probably more humane than we are. The animals in Dr. Doolittle's stories are very humane, and Dr. Doolittle is honored to be able to communicate with them. Uh, but I think that's just sort of one iteration of the animal story tradition. I actually came to realize while I was writing this also, the odd echo between Animal Farm, a British story of talking pigs, and a few years later, E.B. White writes hmm. Charlotte's Web, an American story of talking a talking pig, um, in a much sunnier, more optimistic take, as America tends to be, yeah. more sunnier and optimistic than England. <laughs> it's a great observation. Uh, when I was reading your book, I, I, I thought about uh, Algis Huxley's uh, Brave New World, which I think has fallen a little bit out of fashion as a high school uh, reading, maybe not, but it's certainly not as prominent as 1984 in popular culture. But given its emphasis on uh, the use of... Um, pharmaceuticals to soothe and control population, it's surprising to me that it's not more timely, or it's timely, it's interesting to me, it hasn't gotten the attention that Orwell's gotten. I can't remember whether I mentioned this in the book. Uh, Huxley and Orwell knew each other. Huxley, in fact, had been Orwell's French teacher at school. Um, and there's been this debate in recent years, sort of a running, skirmishing argument, who got the modern world right? Huxley, with the government seducing by pleasure, or Orwell, in which the government uh, controls through pain? And I think the fact of the matter is both are both, right. Yeah. That the, <laughs> the majority of the people, most of the time, uh, care more about pleasure than about freedom. But the fact is that a small, tough, uh, difficult minority will always insist on... Uh, truth and freedom, and they're almost always a minority, uh, even at the expense of suffering pain. And uh, again, I go back to the Soviet dissidents. Uh, two things that strike me about them, they really were dedicated to freedom and truth, and also they tend to be really curmudgeonly people. I mean, if you, to be able to take on a whole government and fight back and prevail, you have to have a real stubborn streak in you. I mean, most people get frustrated just when they go to the U.S. post office. Well, the Soviet Union was like a giant post office that threw people who complained into prisons in the back of the post office. Uh, so, and I would argue post office got yeah. better. Uh, it, it, uh, it has. The, my, I live in, on an island in Maine, and the post office here is very nice. Under pressure but from FedEx was, and modern techniques, it's, it's, it's improved. It's nothing like it was so 25 market, years the mar- ago. The market has bailed them out. A You're right, bit. but I used to think as I... As I stood in line in post offices, I thought, this is as close as I will ever come to living in the Soviet Union. <laughs> uh, well, you, you may have underestimated uh, the future a little bit. Uh, the surveillance aspects of, of American life are, are a little, and, and everywhere now, are a little bit, um, are a little bit creepy for me uh, in terms but of its threat to liberty. It's interesting you should mention that. That's one thing that um, I think Orwell didn't see. He did see the intrusiveness of government. He did not uh, see the intrusiveness of the corporation, which I think, partly because of market forces, is much better at surveilling the individual than the government is. Uh, yeah, I, I, and I, I disagree with you a little bit uh, in that. Really? Uh, yeah, because although I think they can surveil us in the sense right now that they know what we search for and they, they can tailor their, their ads and make money off us um, – I can I can always stop using Google. I can switch to DuckDuckGo. I can turn off my computer, and they can't put me in jail. They can't kill me. They can't torture me. And I I just I think to compare uh, corporations to the state in terms of the risk and the threat when they're together that that that's very frightening. Absolutely, and it's a big problem, and it's not to be minimized. Mm-hmm. But the pure the profit motive and its ability to to harm me is always limited by the fact that their coercive ability is is limited. It's not always zero. Obviously, there's cultural forces that might encourage me to use Facebook or, or some other service that, that allows me to give up some of my freedom. 
but I can always close that computer. And I and you you can you can argue well that's not really realistic, but it doesn't compare to a knock on the door in the middle of the night and 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 being tortured in the uh, in. in or murdered in a concentration camp. It just, it's just not, I, I find that it's a little bit, um, I think it's unhealthy even to, to even suggest they're even in the same magnitude. You can disagree. Well, it's an interesting observation. I hadn't heard it before and I want to think on it some, um, taking Churchill and Orwell's advice to uh, <laughs> mold the facts before you come to decisions on them. Uh, I, I think it may be the equivalent of uh, the Huxley-Orwell difference is the, the, um, the pervasiveness of corporate surveillance. Uh, it, it, it's, it's not coercive, but it is pervasive. You basically cannot hold a job in America without using a computer nowadays. So, yes, you can become effectively a cultural hermit, uh, but you you can't really do anything. You can't, I mean... You can't make a a airplane reservation. Uh, you, you you can't do a lot of things in this country without going online. Uh, you're really forced to go online unless you want to live in the cultural equivalent of the deep woods. Yeah, no, and they know a lot about us. And by they, I mean corporate entities of various kinds. It's splintered to some extent, but to some extent, it's it's a little bit more centralized than than I'm comfortable with. And there's a lot of uh, at least for now. Things change. Surprise has come along about who's in, who's you know, search engine is is the search engine du jour, et cetera, and who's you know, Instagram is replaced by this and that. Snapchat. I'm not going to get the chronology right, but uh, so there's some movement and competition in a way that isn't there. Uh, so my my only point would be that certainly they know a lot about us. Their ability to use that is is mitigated by the fact that I can walk away from it. But there's still some scary things. I don't want to minimize that. I think it is an area that we have I to think, think about. I think the scariest thing is when the, the corporate skill combines with the government's coercive agreed. abilities. Oh, agreed. And we're seeing this in some of the products being sold to the government by corporations. Uh, it, it may be in the future that uh, the government develops the ability to simply uh, tap or monitor uh, those corporate databases, yep. and that would be very scary to me. And the flip side of that is they can befriend certain corporate players uh, in various ways, protect their patents extensively um, beyond the letter of the law. They can uh, favor through policy certain industries, which they do. All of that is um, deeply disturbing, which, of course, is why I'm a classical liberal, uh, and not a conservative, I'm, I'm very eager to preserve the freedom of the individual in the face of the state. And I believe, naively perhaps, that the best way to protect ourselves from the power of the corporation is to make sure that the state's power to favor them is limited. But, of course, um, mm-hmm. opinions differ on this. Uh, I, want to turn to, I want to turn to Hayek. Um, I, I, reading about 1984, you know, I haven't read 1984 for maybe 20 years, 25 years. I, I remember, and I think that was the second time, but it's been a long, long time. I was struck by a little bit about Hayek's book, uh, The Road to Serfdom, which was written in 1944, and where Hayek says, you know, we're at risk of going down a very dangerous path here and moving toward a place where the state's too powerful. And people like to make fun of Hayek, saying that he was wrong. We didn't end up with serfdom. And I find that a strange mm-hmm. criticism. It was obviously a warning. It wasn't a forecast. And even if it was a forecast, who cares? It's a silly thing to, 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 to argue about whether he was right. What he was right about is that there is danger in empowering the state too much and, and harming individual liberty. Orwell certainly did the same thing. He wrote a book about a future, a dystopian future that was uh, much more malevolent than Anything that happened in the West, certainly, and even in, in than what happened in the Soviet Union, but it was too close for comfort, obviously. And I wondered if he got any criticism for being overly dramatic about what was at stake and what was at risk, and that his vision of that dystopia was was paranoid. 
the way Hayek did or, and does. Yeah, um, and I think actually that was one of the limiting factors on Orwell's being read, and especially even today, the lingering distaste for Orwell in academic circles, seeing him as kind of a pumped-up young adult or juvenile writer. Um, uh, sort of seeing as a a relic of the Cold War, an artifact that really doesn't speak to us. And I think that's gone away a bit, but still the the academic prejudice against him continues. The thing when you talk about Hayek in Orwell that strikes me is Orwell's great blind spot, as Christopher Hitchens put it, was America. Yeah. And I think this is especially true in economics. Uh, Orwell never saw America, never visited it, unlike Churchill. And so Orwell's only experience of capitalism was British capitalism, which was late industrial era declining capitalism that was focused much more on gaining efficiencies than innovation. And efficiencies is all about squeezing out another 1% or 2%, uh, finding a simpler, faster process, and so on. It's not about creating and inventing new things. And in fact... The capitalism that Orwell saw was a a capitalism that was unable to cope with the coming world. Uh, You know, so for example, there is no British IBM. The British drop out of the um, aircraft business in the 1950s, out of the um, automobile business, except for the luxury uh, items, in the 1950s as well. Uh, Had he come to America... And especially had he been able to survive into the 1980s, 1984, he would have seen a very different form of it. This innovation-based capitalism, especially of Silicon Valley, of the early information age. And I think he might have come up with some very different thoughts. At the same time, I also think he would have, at the end, um, been appalled by the data mining uh, of the American corporation. In fact, somebody who has played with this thought well is the novelist Dave Eggers who wrote yeah, the, the Circle, circle. Yeah. which is 1984 moved Silicon Valley. And Eggers is a very clever writer, and he has a lot of yes, fun with it. Uh, it it's, it's, it's worth reading, though. Uh, if, I, if you haven't read either Animal Farm or 1984 lately, go back and read Animal Farm again. You can read it in an evening. Uh, it's, it's very funny. And I, just as a fable, uh, it's an adult. He calls it a fairy tale, but it's an adult fairy tale. And, in fact, it's a tale of disenchantment. But I just enjoy things like when the sheep, who are kind of morons, start walking around um, chanting four legs good, two legs bad, which they really like to do all day long. And then the birds get mad and say, stop that. Uh, so Orwell's just having fun with that on that level. Uh, and 1984 uh, really resonates in a variety of ways. The official government use of torture, which we've had in the United States uh, now for the last uh, 16 years, a real departure from past policy, which torture actually was used sometimes, but it was always illegal beyond the pale and was often prosecuted. Um, the age of permanent warfare. Uh, he, Orwell has an eerie description in 1984 of war occurring in distant places carried out by specialized troops and not really affecting most people except for occasional bombs going off in the cities. Yeah. Well, that's almost exactly the state of war we have now. Uh, so I think they're both worth going back and kind of seeing how they apply, especially to the post-9-11 world. Yeah, it's really extraordinary. I didn't thought about it until uh, just now that it, you'd have thought that the year 1984, once it had come and gone, that Orwell's book would be considered a sort of interesting historical relic. Uh, but it's a timeless four-digit description of um, authoritarianism that will probably never die, which is really quite remarkable. It wasn't seen that way until recently. Even Harold Bloom, a sympathetic critic, and by the way, one of my professors at college, um, Harold Bloom um, called 1984 the Uncle Tom's Cabin of the Cold War. Yeah. And it's only when the Cold War ends that you say, well, actually, no, it's a universal story about the relationship between the individual and the state. I mean, there's a reason there are 13 translations of 1984 into Chinese. Yeah. There's a reason that the government of Thailand doesn't like you to bring 1984 into the country. Uh, people have seen, yeah, that this is a constant struggle 
in a variety of forms. And what Orwell does is give us a physical and a mental vocabulary for dealing with this, how to think about it. Let's close with a quote from your book, which I think is uh, worth remembering. You say, to refuse to run with the herd is harder than it looks. Uh, I'm... um, I find my natural reaction in the face of the current political climate, and by that I mean by the current political climate, I mean both how the left and the right talk about their, um, their quote, sides. I find it deeply dispiriting. Um, and uh, someone recently criticized me for my glib, the glib ease with which I implied a pox on both their houses, but I do feel – that that attitude, a pox on both their houses, and by both their houses, I mean the left and the right. Um, it's to me the only. It's really the only uh, thoughtful, the only refuge for a thoughtful person these days. I find myself disinterested in reading the newspaper because I find it so depressing. I find I have no interest in the minutia of policy. Uh, not even the minutia. Forget the minutia. The even the the latest swing. Because the discourse on it, I find so, uh, to be blunt, dishonest. And um, I don't know. I, I know what you're saying with that line, and I want to I champion that view, which is that to be a real contrarian, especially when you have some skin in the game, is incredibly difficult. So many people went along with the left when the Soviets – went along with the Soviets when they were murdering people. And so many people were appeasers because that was, you say, as you point out, not just – appealing but fashionable and fashion just seems to dominate so much of our discourse maybe that's nothing new but it seems the quality is um in many ways lower than than ever and react to that i i know exactly where you're coming from because i've kind of felt this that way for several months since the election and not just that's not just a hit on trump that's also on a hit on the way the democrats conducted the election and their response to it That said, I find two points of optimism these days. Number one is principle. Look around for people of principle who, like Churchill and Orwell, are are willing to stand by principle and especially to stand up and point it out when their own side, to use your phrase there, uh, violates the principle. And there are people like that around. There's not just not enough, uh, but there, 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 there are people like that. The second thing is, I actually take a real um, pleasure in seeing the American system work. The Founding Fathers anticipated situations like this. It's one reason they designed uh, an adversarial system of government. Yep. To make sure that no one power center came to over-dominate the workings of the government. Uh, And I actually find a real amusement in seeing Donald Trump's uh, tweets against uh, judges. You know, judges are just getting in the way too much. You know, and I think, hey, the American system's working. Uh, every time he complains about a Congress, I say, yep. You know, hats off to the founding fathers. They figured this out. That sometimes you're going to have an executive that's going off the rails. Sometimes you're going to have a Congress that's screwing things up. Uh, and these different branches of government correct each other and push each other back into the road. Uh, and it pushes us back toward the middle. Uh, I find myself grateful for the federal judges of today as I've never been before in my life. And I think in in one sense they're profoundly conservative uh, in that they are simply standing on the Constitution, but also uh, they are showing us that we have an operating manual for this country, and it may be slow sometimes, but it does kick in and begin working again. And I, I see that system working right now. Yeah, God bless inertia. Um, sometimes, yeah. sometimes, you know, people complain. I think a lot about Thomas Friedman. That uh, I think I'm quoting him correctly, and if I if I got this wrong, I'll apologize. But otherwise, I'll try to put a link up to that column. I, he wrote. He once wrote, and he's not alone, arguing that oh, the Chinese they have such a great system. You just get stuff done, and um, be, careful, be careful what you wish for. Uh, one of the great virtues yeah. of the of the United States is it's hard to get stuff done, and um, at least in certain sectors. Yes, and that is that is a virtue because you have to go out and persuade people, bring them along, um, maybe even compromise. And 
Uh, if you're not willing to compromise, you're not going to get a lot done in America, and that's a good thing. My guest today has been Tom Ricks. His book is Churchill and Orwell. Orwell, it's a great read. Tom, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.